Well, we have been treated to some fine singing here this morning, have we not? So I was listening to your voices and their voices. The thought came, does heaven sing because we sing or do we sing because heaven sings? We sing because heaven sings. We are a reflection, a shadow. The temple was a shadow. We are a shadow of the praise and the glory that happens in the heavens. And so singing and praising and music is an important part of Christian living. And we have been well treated to it this morning. Thank you for all that are using your gifts, your voices, uh, for the glory of God and for the edification of the saints. You look like a fine group. I'm sure we could find... uh, some housing here if you decided just to, to move uh, to Virginia. We could accommodate you very well. Well, you can be turning your Bibles um, to the very last book of the 66, the book of Revelation. And we're braving the waters, and you know that Revelation is a different kind of book. It has different things in it, symbols and visions, and so it makes it hard. We've got to do our work to diligently understand it. It's a book that's written for us, not directly to us. So, as you know, my approach to understanding the, the mysteries of it is to first ask, well, what would this mean to the first century Christians? Because this is intended to be an encouragement directly to them and then, of course, for the church to come as well. But as you know, visions are hard, dreams are hard, but... Even though we have dreams um, that don't make sense, dreams don't have to make sense. But you can still wake up after a dream and share with somebody, you know, I had a good dream or a bad dream. We know the difference. And Revelation is somewhat like that. And all the visions and all the, the symbols that take place, there's still a main message. There's still a main theme that comes forth very, very strong and very, very clear. And that is God is in charge. God rules history, and he's bringing all of it to its uh, consummation in Jesus Christ. So all of the pictures and the symbols are, are buttressing that truth. Jesus rules. God reigns. So we're not going to understand it. We'll get to some passages. I'm just letting you know in advance. We're going to get to some passages, and you may really want... To be, you're itching to understand exactly what that means, and we, I may not know. We may not know. And that's, a, that's okay to not know these things. Um, sometimes Revelation is, because of its genre of writing, it's purposely not straightforward because it's, it's meant to get us think, thinking in certain directions. Uh, one of the things that, um, of all the things in Revelation, one of the things that, I don't know, I irks me might be a strong, too strong of a word, but I was just like, you know, there's so many mysteries in there, and the one thing that just kind of irks me a little bit is where in chapter, um, I think it's chapter 4, you get to, it's a whole chapter on all that takes place around the throne of God, and there's a lot of praising going on there. But the elders, the 24 elders, they're throwing their clown, the, the crowns, offering their crowns, and Bowing down before the Lord. Every time somebody says something, everybody breaks into praise. And there goes the elders, and there goes the elders. But they never get up. So I'm like, wait a minute, they're down again, and they never got up. How does this happen? So anyway, we'll see. But, but even in that, I don't have to understand 
why they didn't get up or that, because that's not the point. But, but what I can understand is radical worship because that's the picture. I'm not going to understand the rainbows and the colors and things when we get to that chapter. Necessarily, they, they are symbolic and they do speak to things. But it is just a scene of radical worship where all of creation, the greatest beings are adoring the greatest. And that is Jesus Christ. So with a proper introduction and then looking at the, uh, the prologue, Previously, we're going to venture into John's greeting to the seven churches, and our worship time was almost a mini-sermon. The way we sang through these verses, I appreciated that. So we're in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So this is John's greeting. It doesn't take long to realize what John's thinking about or what's on John's mind. His words are absolutely saturated with theology, saturated with thoughts about who God is. And it's a very God-centered greeting. Now, this is a not our typical kind of letter or our typical uh, greeting. In the Old Testament, they tell you who they are up front. We would say, Dear Jane, such and such and such, sincerely, Joe. But in that day, they announced who they were in the very beginning. And they, it was customary to give a greeting of kindness, a, a benediction, if you will, or a blessing up front. And that's what John does. Now, this is a pretty safe passage, I think. Familiar territory. The only thing that is a little bit confusing in here is how, uh, or the seven spirits, Right? I just want to get that over up front so you're not wondering the whole time what that might mean. The seven spirits are also before the throne. So in John's mind, you have a God the Father, you have God the Son. Well, who are the seven spirits? Well, I haven't read anything contrary to this, but the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. And again, it's the symbolism of seven, which stands for completeness. So it is, it's a recognition of the sevenfold Spirit, the Holy Spirit is sevenfold. So numbers have significance in Revelation, and it would be a mistake to just jump right in and take everything literal, because some things are not to be taken literal. But in the scriptures, certain numbers, God uses them to communicate certain things, and seven is completeness or fullness. You think about the seven days of creation. That's that was by design. It wasn't like God said, I wonder how many days it would take to execute my plan and it ha- just so happened to take him seven no, everything is calculated with God 
And so just to get that out of the way up front, the seven spirits before the throne is the Holy Spirit. So basically you have the triune God, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And the Spirit is in His fullness and His completeness. So it's a greeting, a God-centered greeting. John is telling us, in essence, who God is. And even in verse 8, God speaks himself. But it's an interesting greeting because you have the benediction in verses 4 and 5. And then 5b, it kind of just it starts turning into a prayer. And then by the time you get to 7, that's considered a hymn. So he said amen two times already, and we're still going in this passage. That, turn, that is considered to be a hymn. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and then in verse 8, God speaks. So I think it's important to see how saturated or God-saturated that this greeting is because, in essence, it's this kind of thinking that sets the pace for the rest of the book. And, and, and this is also God revealing himself. He has chosen to reveal himself through this strange book. And God can be known through this book. We will, we will see aspects of God that perhaps we, we hadn't seen before or we will relearn or get a tighter vision and understanding of who God is by wrestling and grappling with a lot of this symbolism here. I think it's one of the mistakes that people make in trying to understand Revelation is we... We zero in on a part that's hard to understand. We, we just have to know, say like the, the number of the beast or even what the seven spirits are. We just take a piece in it and then we, we, we run with that trying to figure that out and we lose sight of what the whole book is about. And we have to keep in mind that the whole book is, is about God and what God is doing and how he is sovereign, how he rules and how all of history is on a course. And it all finds its end, its consummation in Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is describing. Now it uses symbols and trumpets and so forth and seals to depict this, but that's the big picture. It's very God-centered. The second thing I want to point out in this is also how Christ-centered it is. Now, John doesn't just mention Jesus, but he actually gives us some very rich descriptions of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And I want to camp there for a while. So first we learn that Jesus in verse 5 is the faithful witness. He's a faithful witness. That word for witness is in the Greek is martis. And up until the book of Revelation, really, it meant just that. You are a witness. Uh, has to do with a court of law. You may be asked, even today, to serve as a witness to help decide justice. So you are bearing a testimony. That's what the word literally means, perhaps even in a, a legal setting of sorts. So in the early church, that's what the Christians did on behalf of Christ. They were witnesses. And they took the truths of the gospel They took what was revealed to them and what they knew and they shared the good news with others. They were a witness that Christ is here, the kingdom of God is at hand and forgiveness of sins comes through Jesus Christ and the shed blood. And so they were sharing with the world the truths of God, bearing testimony to that. 
But as you know, and as we learned in our little Christmas mini-series in John 1, that light came into the darkness. But not all of the darkness likes the light. So the light meets opposition. And these enthusiastic Christians met opposition in their testimony. And so what happened was these witnesses that were bearing witness to Christ met opposition and sometimes were persecuted even to death. As a matter of fact, so many of them were persecuted to the point of death that the word martyrs for just being a witness now took on a new meaning and that was you're a martyr. That is that some witnesses of Christ meet their death. Now, that's how we understand and even use the word today, martyr. We say it's a Christian martyr or the book of martyrs. There's ministries and so forth. And these are those who didn't just bear testimony, but they did it at the cost of their very lives. And John says Jesus is this faithful witness. He is the best witness. He, he gave the best testimony. He was the best spokesperson on behalf of God, and as we learned in this morning's Sunday school, he was God incarnate. You can't understand God any more clearly than by looking at Christ. What he says, what he does, everything about him teaches us about God because he is God. He was the best witness. He revealed to us, he said, I reveal to you what my Father reveals to me. It's pure, it's clean, it's true. So that is the idea of the faithful witness. But what also did Jesus do? It was because he bore testimony to God that his life was taken. It was because he shared the truths of the kingdom, the truths from heaven that his life was taken. And so the faithful witness became a martyr. That could be the end of some. We see that in our world today. There's still persecution. The darkness does not like the light. And sometimes it might come down to, if I say the truth or I share the truth, because I want people to be set free, I may lose my life. These are real life decisions that Christians have to make that maybe some of us will have to make someday. The word also in our... Um, our culture, our context, has kind of taken on another meaning. I don't know if you've noticed. But um, the meaning kind of for, for martyr, so we have it in our Christian circles, but we also have it, I guess, in our, in our pop culture. And that is martyr can mean uh, I want to be pitied. I'm going to act like a martyr. Play, or we might say you're playing the martyr. So you ask the kids, maybe, would you clean your room? Or would you take out the trash? And it's like, oh, at the cost of my very life, yes. Yes, I will, I will do this. So to play the martyr is like to, to ask, is to do something for somebody and act as if it's costing you your very life. And I play the martyr at home uh, frequently with Lisa when she might ask me, could you tidy up or something we're having company? Or can, why does this need to be here or something like that? All right. I make it plain and clear that this is it with great sacrifice that I am doing this. So the first meeting was simply witness, and then it became uh, witness unto death. 
the martyr. And then in our culture, it can be kind of wanting self-pity. But Christ bore witness. And he was killed for it. He, he died for the cause of the kingdom that he inaugurated and he came. I think it's a good question to ask ourselves in light of this. As living sacrifices, what are we willing to give for the cause? It may not be our life, but every day it costs to give to the cause of Christ because what we're saying is Christ is preeminent. He is more important. And so I will make this sacrifice maybe just witnessing to somebody when you're not comfortable with doing it. Maybe giving up something of the world. It is a cost. God recognizes those sacrifices. But it communicates the preeminence of Christ. And the way that we act in our Christian life, because people see our behavior, they see what we're doing, is also a testimony of what we believe and what we hold true. It should be no surprise that John brings this up so early in the book because we know that Revelation is much about persecution. And it is God's way to help us prepare and to be thinking about what will I do if the the day comes where my life is on the line or the day comes I have to give things up, maybe not my life, but I have to give things up that are very, very dear to me. These are real questions and things that we need to search our hearts and understand. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but in Revelation 12, 11... It says, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to the end, even to death. Now, this is Revelation describing how people followed Christ. And they are described as ones, in essence, that loved Christ even more than their own life. That is, the, that's the, that is radical worship. Radical love for God. For they loved not their lives even unto death. I don't know anything that could be any more countercultural than that. Because we are constantly fed to love yourself. You are it. You are worth more than anything. You're worth more than anybody. And so life should circle around you because you're so great. We have lifted the worth of the individual up in our culture to a level, by the way, that can't be sustained. We have given ourselves rights that step on other people's rights that they have given themselves, and we're finding ourselves in quite a violent argumentative culture. And the idea of the worth of self, when you detach it from the dignity of God, in other words, yes, I'm, I'm precious and I'm worth something because I'm created in the image of God, but when you detach your worth from a greater worth, what do you have? You have no substantiation, no foundation for it. And it causes, it wreaks habit. So the rights, the individual worth that you're seeing us give ourselves in our culture today cannot be sustained. Now, while our world is busy focusing on how great and wonderful we are, in the book of Revelation, all they're doing is focusing on how great and wonderful God is. 
Is that what, that's what it means to be a worshiper of God. He is great. He's wonderful. And I'm a servant. I'm his worshiper. I'm his creation. And I was created to love him and endure him and be excited about him and rejoice in all that he does and to trust in him and care for him. So, though we might be taught to care for ourselves and pamper ourselves no matter what the cost, from heaven's perspective, whatever we might have to give up is far worth it because of the preciousness of Christ. That's the noble thing to do. So if we let it, in this sense, revelation will every much change our lives, has that potential to change our thinking and conform our lives to the image of Christ like any other book in the Bible. And it often shows us or brings us to points, what's really important in life? What really, really matters in life? D.A. Carson says, we'll see that either you have the mark of God on you or you have the mark of the beast on you. You either have the mark of the beast on you and thus you face the wrath of God. Or you have the mark of God on you and thus you face the wrath, the wrath of the beast. You're going to belong to one side or another. Whose wrath would you rather have? That's the way the whole thing is looked at here. So acknowledging Christ as a faithful witness it's it's important part of Scripture. It's an important part of knowing ourselves. It's an important part of, of knowing what we may be called to because we don't serve a God who's so great and mighty that doesn't get his hands dirty and he just yells down from heaven, I want you to sacrifice yourself for me because I'm so great. We have a God that comes down to earth and sacrifice himself because of his love for us. And then he says, follow me. That is the greatness of God. Second, we see the firstborn of the dead. I won't spend much time on this because it's pretty straightforward. He's the firstborn of the dead. But you might be asking yourself, wait a minute. He rose from the dead, but others rose from the dead before he did. So how could he be the first? You had Elisha prayed for a boy who was dead. He came to life. Elijah did the same thing. Then you had Jesus who raised Lazarus. So there were people that beat Jesus to it, but what John is referring to is raised with a resurrected body. Jesus is the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he is the first to be raised from the dead with a resurrected body. And because he did that first, that's what we can count on. That's what we can anticipate. Christ will give us a resurrected body. Third, the ruler of kings on earth. Who's in charge? I mean, when you listen to the news these days and you read articles and you see how people live their lives and choices that people make, who's in charge? Who are we accountable to? Who's running things? In this world. Who's the most powerful ruler? This text doesn't say that that he will rule. He is ruling. He is the ruler. It's not something that we're waiting for. Now you don't always see it this clearly. Because though he is ruling. 
he has opposition. But that doesn't mean he's not ruling. It doesn't mean he's not the king. He has, it, it means that he's ruling in the midst of the opposition and he is in the process as the great ruler of bringing all opposition into submission to him whereby all opposition will face complete justice. So we're not waiting for the rule of Christ. The rule of Christ, the kingdom of God, was inaugurated with the first coming of Christ. And of course we're reminded that he will come again. 1 Corinthians 15.25 For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that is what Jesus is doing right now. That is in progress. It's what we witness in this world. And that is the battle and much of the battle that the book of Revelation describes. So this is important. It's important especially for Christians in the first century who may have been facing for, uh, persecution. When you think that there just are, are powers over you, earthly powers that make you feel powerless, what, what a blessing it is to know that those earthly powers that make you feel powerless are actually under somebody else's thumb. And that should encourage all of us. So whether it's persecution from a Roman Empire or the Ottoman Empire or a communist empire or radical Islam, what John is teaching the church is this. Above every authority is another authority until there's just one authority. And above every king is another king until there's just one king, and above every ruler is another ruler until there's just one ruler. And that's the ruler, Jesus Christ. He is ruling and reigning, not just in our hearts, but physically on this earth, bringing all things into subjection. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. Number four, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We sang a hymn to that effect this morning. Loves us and freed us from our sins. The greatest proof of God's love for us is Christ shedding his blood on the cross. That is the greatest proof. That is, that is the proof that Scripture constantly brings us to and draws us to regarding the exhibition of God's love. The, the love originates in that. The King James Version says in this verse that He washed us from our sins, whereas my version says He freed us from our sins, but the two work together. If he washed us, then we are now free. We are, not, we are not under the guilt of condemnation. We're free from it. And we are free because we are washed. So both are true. But the greatest demonstration of God's love is that beaten, bloody body on the cross that stayed there by his own will because of his love. Now, we live in a broken culture. I know God designed family and marriage ideally to care for us and it is a form on this earth to 
demonstrate his love. And so God uses family and friends and strong relationships and other things to reveal and demonstrate his love to us in this world. But the greatest demonstration is the cross. And I say that because our world is broken. Uh, we, have, we have broken families. We have divorces. We have very painful experiences sometimes in relationships. And I've heard people say, uh, because of um, being raised in a, in a broken family, I have a hard time feeling the love of God. I want to feel the love of God. I want to know the love of God in that way. But because of the distrust and, and not being fully loved and embraced by parents, they struggle with that. And so there's different ways or approaches to try to help people understand and, and feel the God, uh, feel the love of God. And one of the things that some counselors are using today uh, is by taking people back and reimagining their lives, reimagining your life. Well, God was there in that painful moment when nobody else was, and God was here at this, and it can be very uh, cathartic, very healing, and, and a very emotional experience. And um, I think that, that there is a time for we want to see Christ in our lives from beginning to end because he is really there. But to reimagine things is second best, in my opinion, because we have the proof on the cross. And we can reimagine things away just as we can, re we can imagine them in. But when you look at what Scripture does and what Scripture informs us and tells us, if we're ever struggling to know that God loved us, this is real space, time, history, proof. He died for you. There just is no other greater demonstration. So when the earthly ones fail us, when the earthly means fail us, just go to the cross and see the love of God poured out for you. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says in Galatians 2.20. And listen what he says in Ephesians 3.14-19. For this reason I, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. God wants us to know the love of Christ. He wants to disclose himself. He wants us to feel loved and know we're loved and to be loved. And he does that through his word and the demonstration of dying on the cross. Fifth, verse six, he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. We spoke about this in our covenant class series that in the New Testament, we are priests. We are all priests. Um, it's covenant language. The Lord set up a priesthood and they served a specific function in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.9 uses this same language to describe all the saints when he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And this is the doctrine of the priesthood of believers. 
So we aren't priests in the sense that we offer the sacrifice, but when you look at what a priest does, what is the function of a priest but to mediate God to the world or man and man back to God. And we as New Testament saints, that's what we do. We mediate God to the world. We bear witness to Christ. And we pray on behalf of the world and our friends to God. So in that way, we are priests, we are servants to the Lord. We're not just, uh, there's not just a subset, a group of priests, according to the New Testament, in the church. We're all priests. Every true believer is a servant and a minister to God. So I think about the priesthood and how all of that was established. You think about the different courts and all the rules and the regulations. But in the center of that worship was the Holy of Holies. And that, that was like the honor of all honors. And only one priest, the high priest, and once a year could get that close to God. And so in Revelation, just to give a hint, we're also going to see temple talk. There's temple furniture. There's temple dimensions. And it's the idea of worshiping in the presence of God. And if you think that that. To be in the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, to be that close was kind of the ultimate earthly experience. Then you have an idea of what it will be like in heaven. Because heaven is the fulfillment, the fulfillment of all the goodness and the experiences that we have here on earth that draw us into the presence of God. And so we see these descriptions are very rich in Christ. I want to close with verse 7. It's considered to be a hymn. Here, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Three things I want us to consider in this, and that is, as believers, this calls us to consider the end. He's coming. There is an end. To life, There's an end to the world as we know it. Scripture teaches Christians to orient our lives actually towards the end. To orient our decisions towards the idea that Christ will come again and we will have to give an account. And again, we live in a culture that wants to live by the moment. That wants to seize every opportunity to experience every, every possible pleasure because they're not sure. Perhaps some don't believe in an afterlife or perhaps others just don't care. They want to seize the moment and experience ever, every pleasure as if this is all there's ever going to be. And so I need to get all I can while I'm here. That is not a Christian view. The Christian view is we're actually just passing through. And the, and the real treasure is in heaven. And that's why Jesus said things like, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What shall he give in exchange for his soul? In Matthew 16, 26 and again 10, 28. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's this whole focus that we are to live and, and make our daily decisions, but that the end is coming. And, and this isn't all there is. And this is so helpful because if we start to think that our possessions or even our earthly relationship, that's all we have, and then we lose it. 
We're devastated. Because that's all we clung to. But when you cling to the end, when you know that this is just, this is passing through, then it makes a difference. We know that what we believe determines our values. So what we truly believe determines our values. And our, our values influence our behavior. And our behavior shapes culture. So we could at any given time look at our lives, look at our purchases, look at how we spend our time. What do we value most? What do we treasure most? Are we building up treasures on earth? Or do we communicate to one another in the world or say even as this church family, what do we communicate to each other? What do we communicate to our community about where our true treasure is? Do we spend all our time and energy on earthly Riches reminds me of the old spiritual, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Second thing, Jesus is the judge of all. We are accountable for every thought, we are accountable for every action, and he's a just God. And that means that we will get what we deserve. Now, if we have been forgiven for our sins we've been thrown we've been robed in righteousness we've been pardoned for our sins then we get eternal life but we will be judged accountability is coming and then lastly all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen it's it's maybe a little bit possible that what he's describing is uh, they, they will, when Christ comes, they'll feel their guilt of rejecting him. But I think more likely is they're wailing because they realize judgment has come. They're, they're realizing because they are guilty. They were participants in the death of Christ and the rebellion against Oh God, and what they're mourning is the judgment that they will receive for their actions. Let me just close with this quote by D.A. Carson. In an age and generation that is thinking about hell all the time, calling down hellfire on all and sundry, there needs to be some renewed lessons on forbearance and forgiveness and the love of God in his limitless dimensions. But in a generation that becomes increasingly pluralistic and endlessly tolerant of almost everybody in anything under all circumstances, it becomes important to think through the brute reality that the person who walks, talks most about hell in all the Bible is Jesus. And the book of the Bible, with the most horrendous descriptions of it, however metaphorical they are, however symbol-laden they are, is the book of Revelation. This book will take you to the highest heavens and to the lowest hells. People get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home, one song says. And so we are challenged to think about our relationship with God, think about our lives, the choices we make, our values, the things we treasure, where will, be, where will we be going? Where will we spend eternity? We have the gift of God's word 
and the gift of God's Spirit to prompt us to worship the one and only true God. And I trust that that work is taking place here this morning. May God bless the preaching of His Word.